co-buyers are anyone who anyone who is not married to the other person buying the home um, or buying in a group. At its core, it's a it's a wealth distribution tool and a wealth creation tool for people, right? So we're we're giving people access that wouldn't otherwise have access, and we're empowering them by putting them on the ladder of equity building. There's a degree to which our our work is to encourage people to dream beyond the American dream, beyond this this idea that the thing to do is to be an individual. And and the truth is like collectivism is a lot easier in a lot of ways. Hello, Boulder and the wider world. This is the Sharing Boulder podcast. My name is Philip Bogren, and for episode 48, I spoke with Sarah Wells, who was a partner in the real estate agency Live Work Denver, which specializes in co-buying real estate, which is simply a way to buy homes with other people. Sarah is one of the founders of the Queen City Cooperative and is the board chair for the Boulder Housing Coalition, which is a nonprofit that develops affordable rental cooperatives. Sarah and I talked about co-buying as a way for more people to be able to build equity in their home, in a housing market gone mad, speed dating for finding co-buyers, and the value of living in community. Earlier this year, I posted a blog article where I estimated that the number of empty bedrooms in Boulder is approximately 30,000 using census data. Recently, Boulder City Council updated the occupancy restrictions, which could potentially make it easier to make better use of those empty bedrooms. I think now is a great time to pivot from occupancy reform to thinking about vacancy reform. This episode is the second in a series that addresses the need to make better use of our available housing stock and practical strategies for doing so. Please see episode 46 with Anna Marie Pluhar for the first episode in this series. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sarah Wells. We ain't throwing starfish here, now we're having a good party. Talking about structural change. Sacred, even beneath that vacant parking lot But the weeds are doing their best to express The need for something different Gonna make some space for you and me To live here all together Gonna make it safe and fun For kids to get around the town Gonna find me a residential pedestrian district Where I can gracefully grow older Gonna spend my remaining years Sharing Boulder Sarah Wells, thank you so much for uh, being on Sharing Boulder. Um, I, if you don't mind just introducing yourself for a minute. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Sarah Wells. I am the um, co-founder of Queen City Cooperative in Denver and also a partner at Live Work Denver, which is a real estate team that specializes in co-buying, uh, live work and creative spaces and community housing. And I am really passionate about um, all different types of community housing and about expanding um, how people can access home ownership. You you live in a co-op yourself. I do. Right? Is that okay yep. to I still talk do. About? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, raising a child in that environment. How's that? How's that working out? Yeah. Um, so I still live in our co-op. We've been there eight years, and we have a four-year-old. So um, now we've been in the co-op without a child and with a child the same amount of time. Um, and I really, I, I initially thought 
um, that I might, that our family might outgrow a shared house model when we had a child. Um, and then he was six months old when we went into lockdown and community became more important than ever. Um, and the support that we received from our housemates was, um, so vital to our like sanity and ability to thrive. Uh, and so now I can't imagine raising a child by ourselves, <laughs> honestly. It's so hard. <laughs> I mean, as someone who uh, tried to do the nuclear family thing in a, in a condo with, with small kids, it was, uh, it's kind of an impossible ask to, to tell young parents to be like, hey, um, go do all this on your own. Mm-hmm. And when you need help, pay for it. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, there was like a really wonderful little like micro economy that developed in our house during that time. We had a housemate who worked in fine dining. She lost her job because the restaurant closed. Uh, We lost daycare, so she became our nanny part time. Uh, And so she was better off. We were better off. Um, So there's there are those elements, but there's also like you know, when you're sleep deprived and at your wit's end and like need someone else to hold the baby or need someone else to make you dinner, those those options are there too. And we were all there to support each other. So I think that experience reinforced for me, not only my desire to continue to live in community, um, but also to spread the message more widely that it is um, especially useful and, and valuable for families. Well, we kind of just dove right in. I wanted to just say thank you for your service <laughs> to the community and wel- welcome you a little bit more because um, I'm, I'm familiar with you through a couple of things, even though your, your, your orbit of influence is mostly Denver, mm-hmm. but um, I know you sit on the board for Boulder Housing Coalition, so I've seen you at different events related to that. And then you're also the real estate agent for David Adamson's project I am. At, the, at 750 North Street. And um, I, I just, um, you know, I don't, I, when I go to David's website on that co-op, I don't know how much of that is, is some of your uh, fingerprints on there. Um, but uh, anyways, I just want to say, you know, y- you have really sparked in my brain a lot of uh, imagination about what's possible around thinking about, like myself, I, wanna, I want to be a, a homeowner of some kind at some point. And, um, but I don't. Um, like my own, my own sense is I don't want to be like just elbowing other people out and getting mine, you know, like I, mm-hmm. I want, whatever I do, I want it to be something that is an inclusive approach to housing and, and mm-hmm. brings other people along and makes that the space, whatever space I'm in, uh, uh, you know, it's not like I want everyone to come live with me, but I, right. I, I also <laughs> don't want to like make my goal to be someone who lives by myself in a mm-hmm. large house until I die. Right. Yeah. Your ownership doesn't, and you're also, your ownership doesn't need to come at the expense of other people. Yeah. Right. Like I think that's one of the challenges I have with some of the traditional mindset around like house hacking or, uh, which is flipping or yeah, flipping or like people who are setting out to create a rental portfolio so that they don't have to work anymore. Right. Mm. Those, that fortune is built on the backs of other people instead of built alongside them. Yeah. Right. And so how can we how can we level the playing field to make the entry point to housing more accessible and then also sharing the appreciation and the equity that comes with homeownership 
because the primary way that we create generational wealth in this country is through land ownership. And so how do we make that more possible for more people? Do you mind answering that question? <laughs> <laughs> That's a dull one. I yeah. wish I had the perfect answer to that question. Uh, I mean, my, my solution and the place where I put most of my energy is through co-buying and shared ownership, right? The One of the messages that we have had some good success with recently is um, the new the new starter home is a shared home. That, that if we can um, get people on the ladder of building equity sooner, then they can build more wealth earlier in their lives and trade up to something by themselves if they decide that that's what they want. Um, but I have I end up having a lot of conversations with first-time buyers, many of them younger, where we have to sort of unbox that the cards were stacked against them and it is not a moral failure that they don't have a down payment for a house. Right Ex now. Explaining to them that the cards are stacked against them. Yeah. I assume most most young people know that, but they, they, they come with some baggage of feeling like there's some guilt. They, they, they've, yeah. they've messed up. Like they didn't get on, they didn't get on the the high earning train or something like yeah, that. Yeah. There's and a feeling of like I I should have done it differently, or if I had yeah. made different choices, then I could be here. If I hadn't stopped right. to smell the roses and just worked my ass off from yeah. <laughs> from the beginning, it was like maybe I don't if know. If I hadn't pursued that philosophy degree, <laughs> yeah, sure, I, yeah, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, interesting. Well, um, yeah, I, I wonder if you could just explain your business and how co-buying works. Like, uh, I assume that I've I've mentioned co-buying every time. I'm hmm, most of the times that I mention co-buying, people are like, "What's that?" You know, uh -huh. That happened this morning, as a matter of fact, um, at a at a medical appointment, and uh, so maybe just start from <clears throat> you know def a definition yeah. and, and build up from that. Sure, um, most so let's call them traditional homeowners. So the standard way that you would consider buying a home is usually individuals or people who are married to each other. Co-buyers are anyone who anyone who is not married to the other person buying the home um, or buying in a group. So sometimes that is families buying together. Um, I've helped a lot of intergenerational co-buyers where there's um, you know, a young family that wants to level up and a, um, a parent that wants to age in place. And so we find, um, we find a home that's going to be good for intergenerational use. Um, lots of friends co-buy together because they're maybe not getting married yet or not having kids yet or want to raise their kids together. And so we have two families that are in one home. Sorry, I just made a connection with the last example you gave. It's like, um, Seems like co-buying is a is a great alternative to a reverse mortgage, perhaps, right? <laughs> yeah, like maybe sure. you know, if you live in a large house by yourself and you're having troubles paying the taxes, you have a fixed mm -hmm. income. If you could find a housemate that wanted to buy some of the equity, that seems like much better. Because um, then, because then you can make the arrangement with that person of like, mm -hmm. here, here's the equity I'm giving you, and then like, you know, maybe I'm going to live on that equity, but mm -hmm. then that runs out eventually, but you could have an arrangement that says, hey, I'll rent for some amount or, or stay here for, I guess you're, you're already dividing the house, so yeah. Yeah, no, abso no, absolutely. And I think an antidote to a reverse mortgage is a good example. Um, I've had a few different co-buyers now where there was a parent who had a nest egg from a property and she could e they, they could either you know, buy 
a condo to downsize or they could contribute that nest egg to other family members and then they could own a property together that works for everyone, right? So um, I think it's also a nice way to allow people to age in place with the support that they need and simultaneously help other members of the family that maybe don't have the leg up that mom and dad had. Um, but yeah, there are all kinds of creative ways to share. Yeah, I kind of cut you off as you were, <laughs> as you were kind of listing off some of the possible uh, or likely or, yeah. or, or, or ones that you've actually uh, been a part of. So that's what's yeah. really cool about talking to you is you're actually putting some of these. This isn't theoretical. It's true. Right? I've done it. Yeah, you've yeah. done it. Yeah. And so I guess to finish the thought of like, what is a co-buyer? Anyone that's not married to each other in the purchase. Um and now, now is the sort of fastest growing segment of buyers. So currently represents about one in three purchases of um, single family homes. And uh, I'm sorry, who? What demographic is that? Co-buyers. Co-buyers. Mm-hmm. Right now is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh wow, that's way higher than I expected it to yeah. be. I thought it was a very fringe kind of. It's. Um, I think I don't know that everyone self-identifies as like being a part of the movement of okay. co-buying. Well, because I suppose uh, it could be a romantic couple that isn't married. Correct. That, that's yeah, that a, absolutely. That, that still qualifies, yeah, okay. and that's a large percentage of yeah, that group. Yeah, sure. So the and and what our company does. So we teach a class about co-buying. It's an online class, and it's free to attend. Um, and. We teach people about different forms of community housing. We show some different properties and what it would look like to acquire them with a group. Um, We talk through some of the lending options that are available to co-buyers. So it's really intended to be like an introductory toolbox for um, how to co-buy or why one might consider that option. Um, And one thing that we cover in the class that is True in most urban environments is a lot of people think like, oh, I'll just wait and save for a down payment until I have enough to buy a place on my own. And the reality with the way that the market has historically appreciated in Colorado Mm -hmm. is you have to save at a significantly higher rate to keep up with appreciation than most people expect. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we did the math. So for like a $300,000 condo in Denver, which is kind of the entry point Mm -hmm. in our city, uh, you have to save $1,500 a month in order to keep up with the appreciation of that condo. Wow. Well, so I would think another definition of a co-buyer is um, someone who lives at the property, right? Because another, like what you said kind of sounds like an LLC, maybe investors go in on a, in a company and they buy properties. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I assume this is all like resident buyers. Yeah. So yeah. the vast majority of the co-buyers that I work with are all intending to occupy the property together. Yeah. And then, but do you ever have, do you ever have that? So like, um, one of the thoughts I have is, uh, you know, typically I think of as an apartment building as something that gets bought by a company or private equity. Do you ever have people go in together to like form their own private equity company so they can live in their own apartment building? I've I've read about this in the New York Times. I do do have people that are buying apartment buildings together. Okay. Um, And that's super cool. It's really cool. It's exciting. It's exciting to see it happen. I have, um, 
a group of folks that I'm helping right now, it's, there are eight of them and they're buying a fourplex together. It's okay. um, three couples and then two friends. And uh, they have all these questions about how it works. And they're the same questions that I had when I was starting Queen City and no one had an answer to them. So I feel a little like their co-op mom, like I'm able yeah. to answer the <laughs> uh -huh. questions uh -huh. that I didn't get answers to. <laughs> cool. Um, so... One of the things I wanted to ask about is when when someone takes this go buying class and you're you're helping them explore their options for financing, mm -hmm. um, are they immediately um, you know sort of capped at the what's the what's the phrase like um, uh, disadvantaged because mm -hmm. uh, they want to do a co-op buying arrangement? I mean, are, are there's mortgage companies that understand what's going on and they'll they'll work you get the same kinds of deals as if yeah. you were like a nuclear family going yeah, in on this? Yeah, you do. So the loans are the same. A family buying can use the same loans as friends who are buying. Um, and they don't uh, They don't really differentiate between based on relationship. Yeah. Uh, so that's a huge plus. And I think uh, something that a lot of people don't know, they assume that they have to use a different loan if they're buying as friends, but you can use the same loan products, okay. um, which come at the same interest rates. Uh, and for the most part, you can combine in your loan application all of your income, all of your debts. Uh, and so, you know, if you like, let's say, let's say you're qualified to buy something at three hundred and fifty thousand, and I'm qualified to buy something at three hundred and fifty thousand. For the most part, we can start looking at seven hundred thousand dollar properties together. Okay. Cool. So it really does significantly increase what's possible for yeah. people. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this is a very exciting time to be kind of introducing this to Boulder. As you may know, uh, <laughs> yes. occupancy has been uh, updated. Occupancy restrictions have been updated recently to five unrelated people. So, um, you know, um, a $2 million uh, property split five ways might be um, within reach of, 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 of more people than, you know, all the single people that can buy a $2 million house, you know, sure. or yeah. couples or whatever. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, I guess for anyone listening, I would love to help you buy <laughs> yeah, a two million dollar yeah, property. Yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll totally put links, and I'll I'll uh, add a little introduction on the front end of this. Make sure people know. Uh, remind me the name of your company, though. Live Work Denver. Live Work Denver. Yeah. yeah. Cool. But I've helped several co buyers in Boulder and Boulder County. Oh, nice. So, um, well, so what I wanted to ask about next is how do you find co buyers? And uh, yeah, so maybe I'll just ask that. How do I find co-buyers? Yeah, um, you know, because you're almost like a you're almost like a dating service to some extent, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, how does someone how does someone find co-buyers to buy with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so most of the groups that I have helped have had existing relationships with each other, so mm -hmm. they're friends that come together. Um, part of what we part of the support that we provide in the class and in some of the social events that we produce is like encouragement and some coaching around how to talk about your vision. Um, because I feel if you can adequately articulate what it is that you want to create, um, then you will identify what are the potential connections around you in your existing network or maybe one, one circle out of your existing network um, that might be good partnerships. Um, so if you, for example, are saying, I'd like to co-buy something sometime, right? That's a really different pitch <laughs> from I'm really interested in finding a property 
um, that is close to downtown. Um, I'm really motivated about intergenerational living. I really want to um, have my kids grow up with other kids in community. Yeah. I love histor- the historic charm of older buildings. Right, it, that that starts to actually paint a more specific picture that other people can say yes to. Nice. So, for me. It is about creating opportunities for people to create connections. And we have some social events where we've done that um, and we'll continue to do that. But it's also about helping people fine tune their pitch so that more people can respond to it. Yeah, that's that's really cool. That the um, you know you you gave some earlier. You gave some uh, some examples of the different kinds of people who co buy. But you know it's it, it's kind of amazing the variety of things that. Uh, are in people's visions of what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know this because I went to one of the the speed dating uh, events that you hosted. And uh, it was at a table about this size. And we we sat on opposite sides of the table and you, you spoke with the person across from you. Mm-hmm. And then after 10 minutes, we all got up and, and rotated. Yep. And um, I just was like, the thing I came away with was the the variety of things that people were talking about. There was Mm -hmm. one woman who uh, was a single mom who wanted to find two other single moms to, to get a property, to have three women together Mm -hmm. raising kids, which I just think is uh, an amazing vision to articulate and bring to that space. Um, There was a guy there who wanted the full on co-op, uh, mm-hmm. 10, 10 to 12 adults is what he said, mm-hmm. uh, which is what he wanted. Um, another person was like, I want to find one housemate to, to share, uh, like a small house. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, you know, I assume there's other people who sh- who are just like, I want half of a duplex. Right. You know? So, yeah. Keep it simple. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. yeah. People have different visions and different motivations. And I think if you can find other folks that share a version of your dream, then that's going to help get you through whenever, whatever roadblocks come up in buying a property or developing a community together. Have you actually had a, a large co-op for, that, that got purchased by the, by the people that live there, like a 10 to 12 yeah, um, um, size co-op? I've had several, well, several, I've had maybe four clients um, who ran collective houses that they also lived in um, that purchased new properties to either move or expand to. Um, One of them had been running a collective house for a long time. And then the landlord of the landlord after, after they'd been there for a very long time said, okay, I'm done and I'm selling. Right. And so uh, we found them a new place to go and they were now their owner occupied. They can run that. What was the ownership model? Theirs was an interesting situation because a lot of their residents are super low income. And so they had a friendly investor who acquired a property on their behalf. And there's a, a sort of a longer term transfer of ownership. Right, to um, kind of a thing. Yeah, and then opportunities for, for people to earn appreciation that gets um, gifted to them whenever they leave the property. So for an investor like that, they had cash or they were able to to finance it through a traditional mortgage or they had some cash uh, they had a, a significant chunk of cash um but then the members of the collective um qualified to be on the mortgage awesome yeah what a cool what a cool um setup 
Yeah. Well, I wonder if um, along those lines, do you mind sharing some other uh, success stories that, that kind of stand out as, as things that uh, might, um, you know, light some creative sure. imagination and, and bolder listeners? Yeah. So one, um, so it's, it's, I don't know, I, I feel like I occupy um, a strange corner of um, zoning and building knowledge in the work that I do. Um, and so there are um, lots of houses that I have helped to buy and sell that have multiple kitchens inside of them. Um, and so I'm very familiar with Denver's rules around how you are allowed to have two kitchens. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've sold several houses that sort of uh, navigated that in a bizarre way. Um, one uh, that stands out in particular was an intergenerational co-buy. So there was a um, teacher, an art teacher, who um, bought a house, bought a property with her father, and they. It was a, it was originally a single family home. Some time ago, someone had converted it into a triplex, but never formally changed the zoning to they a triplex. Never told the city, about right? It. Never told the city, <laughs> and so. Um, so we attempted to finance it using a single family home loan. Um, and the appraiser, uh, was like, this is not a single family home. Um, and eventually, uh, we were actually able to work with the seller to remove a couple of ovens, um, from the property. And essentially, essentially then, they were able to appraise it as a single family home. Um, so that really felt like a win for that buyer, right? Because she was able to acquire a property that had three um, functioning units inside of them. Mm-hmm. Um, one for her, one for her father, um, and then one for a you know future community member that could participate. That was really her way of being able to live in the community that she serves as a teacher, which otherwise would have been impossible. Awesome. Well, you said intergenerational uh, arrangement, which which uh, I always I think is kind of a an ideal that that more of us should should aspire to because, you know, we're stratified and segregated in so many ways mm-hmm. when it comes to housing. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things you read about is how, in in the suburbs when they're building new developments this neighborhood and that neighborhood, you know, it'll be stratified by income differences of 10 or 20%. And you have Uh just like a lot of homogeneity and along a bunch of demographic variables. And, and one of the things I feel like is most unfortunate is like people are the same age, you know, Uh like are the same stage in life. And, um, I just love the idea of, um, as I grow older to still be connected with younger people. And, mm-hmm. and I like the idea of kids having access to lots of adults and other, mm-hmm. other kids and not being, uh, you know, pinned in in a backyard, that kind of a thing. Um, well, I guess, I guess like one specific question I have is, um, do you have, have you had lots of families uh, work together for Cobang? I know, know you, you mentioned that you have your yeah. child in a, in a co-op, but I, um, I don't know if that child's an outlier or if there's lots of this going on. I would love yeah. to tell me that lots of this is going on. <laughs> <laughs> I want more of it to be going on. Yeah. Um, so I think what it has been very clear to me that single parents understand this concept with almost no need, no extra oh, yeah. needed explanation. Right. right? Um, and, you know, nuclear families that are intact, I guess, um, have 
not not to not to strengthen this metaphor. No, which is, but which, yeah, I know, but yeah I, nuclear families yeah. that have two caregivers, right? Yeah. Um, they have uh, a feeling like they should be able to make it work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like we've achieved it. We have our own place. We have our own little box. Yeah. Um, but I think COVID especially proved to us that that is not true. Right. Or that like that's actually quite difficult. So I think families are coming around to it. Um, and that's really the intention for my next project is to do um, to have something like we had for Queen City, uh, but to do it on a larger scale so that we can create uh, more private suites for families that al also feature a generous amount of common space. Cool. Um, so essentially... It sounds a little like a hybrid between co-op and co-housing. And co-housing, yeah, exactly. Kind of like in, in between. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. my hope. I, I, think, I think if we can create a... So, for example, in our house, um, my... My partner and I occupy the third floor. We have our own bathroom. We have um, a space on the third floor that has our bed and our closets and then a, a small living room, like a tiny living room. Um, but it's enough space for us to go and spend some time as a family if we want to be out of the fray of everything else, yeah. right? The, the um, board game party going on downstairs or whatever. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Um, so we have somewhere else to go. My son has his own room. So maybe individual, maybe as a family unit, we occupy 400 square feet of private space. And that's that feels like enough that's for us. That's currently what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that feels like enough for us uh, because we have access to a library and a dining room and a living room and a big kitchen and a backyard, right? And so can we do that for other families in a bigger home? Yeah. Um, and I think that So when you say you're per it's like a personal project. Yes. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. So anyone so. who's inspired listening to this, <laughs> please get in touch. Uh -huh. um, there's a 12,000 square foot mansion in Denver that I'm eyeing right now. I think, oh, wow. I think there's a real opportunity for us to retrofit some historic homes uh -huh. um, to be f more family-oriented co-housing. Well, 12,000 square feet divided by 400 square feet <laughs> that's like <laughs> it's a lot that, of families that's a lot of families yeah. <laughs> um, do you do you bump up against occupancy limits in denver with with a, a place that size we do and yeah so you, but but there's a co-op ordinance in denver too so you there can, is not yet a co-op oh, ordinance oh, in denver um there are occupancy allowances um we have a single room occupancy allowance so um, if a home is is allows multi-units in its zoning and is still a single-family home, you can use what is like functionally a rooming house okay. for the zoning. Well, some of those older mansions might actually happen to just be in zoned areas like that. A lot that. of them true? are, yeah. yeah, because the city kind of grew up around them. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's promising. So it's possible. Yeah, I think... It's like I was just talking about this with my team earlier today. People will often, families in particular, will often say, um, "I would love to be in community, but I couldn't. I could never share my own kitchen." And I'm always like, "Okay, tell me more. Like, why? Why do you think that?" Uh, and then the next words out of their mouth are, "Well, when I was in college, right?" And I'm like, "Okay, well, are you the same as you were when you were in college?" Uh, this is this is a point that's worth a little a little um, exploration because in, in the way I see the world, there's like two kinds of people uh -huh. and when it comes to the kitchen. There's people who believe the sink is for dirty dish storage, and people who believe that the sink is for washing dishes. Uh -huh. 
And uh, those two kinds of people uh, have, have, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll fight to the death on this issue. <laughs> yeah. So we have, a, uh, we have a rule in our house called the Kennard Principle because our housemate named Kennard <laughs> brought it to us. I love uh, it already. And uh, the rule is you can never leave dishes in the sink. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. we're a little militant at our house, but well, it, it leads to a well-functioning home. Interesting. In- um, I, um, I'm a late convert to the anti-Canard rule, which oh. is the, the sink is specifically for uh, dirty dish storage. Storage of dirty <laughs> yeah. dishes. And, okay. and then so what you do is when, the, when it's time to do dishes, you just take everything in the sink and put it in the dishwasher, turn, turn on the dishwasher and walk out. And <laughs> if it doesn't go in the dishwasher, then... Uh, you get rid of it. Got it. So. Well, I could see that if we were going to live together, we might need to have a facilitated <laughs> yeah. meeting to yeah. come to an agreement. Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> I, you know, convert back and forth, perhaps. I don't know. But I think my point. I think my point in that is a well-functioning community is built on clear agreements. Yeah, right? for sure. So, yeah, so if your thing is, I could never share a kitchen. From my perspective, I'm like, I love sharing a kitchen because a lot of the times it leads to me being fed by someone who's cooking and has extra. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or like some, my my roommate last winter was like really into making zucchini bread all the time. Um, and, you know, those are gifts and benefits that you receive when you share. And so, OK, I maybe I'm annoyed sometimes because I come I come home and there are crumbs on the counter. But how does it like how does it ultimately weigh out in terms of benefit and annoyance? Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'm curious. Do you mind? Do you mind sharing how much a twelve thousand square foot mansion costs, and how how many ways you're hoping to divide that? <laughs> what, what that comes out to? Yeah, um, it's currently listed at two point eight million. Okay. Uh, I've been hoping I might be able to get it for less than that, uh-huh. and we've been sort of looking at five to six households wow. uh, in that house. That's less than I expected you to say. I, yeah. I think a well, 12,000 square foot house in Boulder, I think, would be a bit more than that. Well, but it's interesting, though. So I'll say, uh, you know, a lot of Yimbis have pretty negative things to say about landmark preservation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that, one, I think there's an opportunity for cooperatives to use landmark buildings mm-hmm. um, because they are often quite large yeah. um, and developers often don't want to buy them because they're because you can't change them. They're not right? flippable. <laughs> yeah. And so is there some potential synergy with some of these larger properties that yeah. where like we do want to occupy them essentially as they are? Um, so I really want that to come into reality in a way that I get to enjoy. Yeah. Awesome. I hope, I hope that for you too. I, I, uh, I've had a bunch of daydreams about, um, possibilities along those lines. What you just said is kind of one of them, you know, like, um, take some multi-million dollar house and figure out how to divide it by the right number of people so that it's affordable for me and the others and, mm-hmm. and, and figure out, but, but then I guess there's always like, is it going to be a, a co-op style arrangement or are you going to try to carve it into, to, into different units? And is that, is, will the city allow that? And, um, what one model, um, I've been thinking about recently is like, Hey, if, if I offered to pay, to have a ADU built and then went and lived in that ADU. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever had someone do that? Like um, take a large yard and put an ADU in the back and say, hey, I would like to kind of pay my way into your backyard. <laughs> I have not 
successfully done that yet, but I've started that conversation with okay. a lot of people. Okay, interesting. Yeah. One of the challenges with ADUs is just the cost to build them. Yeah. Um, I think it's coming down a bit now, but um, last year I spoke to a contractor that specifically works almost exclusively in ADUs, and he was quoting something like $400,000 to build it um, start to finish. So what about some of the um, the prefabbed ones? Modular. Yeah, the modular ones. Because some of those look like they're coming along in terms of really high quality and very yeah. functional. I don't know what, what they look like on the yeah, outside. Yeah, I think but. like with, so, the, so what happens sometimes is people will, um, people will sort of go down the rabbit hole on the modular home and there are, um, like Studio Shed is a company, a local company, where you can essentially build out an ADU on their website, and they'll price it out for you. Um, but the and ship it to you. They'll like still start. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> they'll, they'll put like, the order into the factory. Put your credit card. Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, but but that doesn't include like sewer tap fees yeah. and um, electrical hookups and. Um, the all of the uh, plans that you need to submit to the building department. And so um, the cost of the actual home is not all in yeah. the complete cost. But even still, I would think um, if you spent um, 100000 or 200000 on a modular home mm -hmm. and then added in the the thousands of dollars for the other things, or is it tens Probably of thousands? 50,000. 50,000 for the other things, yeah. so 250,000. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd yeah. like to start pencil, still, pencil that, yeah. pencil still some Still cheaper out. than a condo, right? Yeah. Um, and you get the benefit of community. The challenge, is that the challenge is we don't have great financing tools for building ADUs. Oh, I meant to ask about that, yeah. Okay, yeah. so you don't, you don't get the same loan offerings from the mortgage broker. That, yeah, that because it's, right, because... Riskier. Most of the mortgage products that we have in the United States are built to incentivize purchase of a single family home. An accessory dwelling unit um, is considered accessory, right? So it's yeah. not, it doesn't have the same definition and benefit. That being said, you know, we're in a housing crisis. We're talking about it locally. We're talking about it nationally. Um, the Biden administration has put out several notices about wanting to provide more financing tools um, for alternatives or, you know, what are the ways that we can create gentle density? Um, and I think building homes in people's backyards is a great, yeah. is a great way to do yeah. that. Um, and we saw a version um, of that attempt with the land use bill at the state legislature um, last session. And there was some pushback, right, of people not wanting to see a neighbor across their backyard. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what am I, what, what's this podcast missing? What, what do listeners want to hear from you <laughs> that they should know? Uh, um, what a terrible question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, it's been interest. It's been an interesting journey when I, when I first decided to get my real estate license, I was like, Oh, I don't know. Do I want to become a realtor? Many of them are so gross. And because there's this idea that like housing justice is not in alignment with the commodification of real estate. Yeah. Or um, with markets. Yeah. Or, or, or building a business. Or, yeah. Yeah. And I think where I've sort of come personally is that it's in, as long as we are in this system of um, commodification of real estate and real estate and real estate being the primary driver for generational wealth, 
I'm going to make it my mission to make generational wealth accessible to as many people as possible. And I think one of the one of the initial points that people come to when I talk about co-buying is affordability. Um, but really at its core, it's a, it's a wealth distribution tool and a wealth creation tool for people, right? So we're, we're giving people access that wouldn't otherwise have access and we're empowering them by putting them on the ladder of equity building. I mean, there are some, there are some insane statistics around um, the average savings that a renter has versus the average savings and equity that a homeowner has. And it's a, it's a difference in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. One of, when one of the survey questions that they ask people sometimes is like, if you had to come up with $10,000 next week, mm-hmm. could you do it? How would you do it? You mm-hmm. know, and then the, the answers really vary across these, these things. Yeah. Um, and I guess, the other thing that has come up recently, I don't know who needs to hear this, but I'll say it, right? Um, a lot of co-buyer, a lot of people, when they come into the co-buying conversation, they think that they have to be equal partners and bring mm. an equal oh. amount of money. And the reality is that you don't have to do yeah. that. It doesn't have to be equal shares. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't have to be and equal it, and shares. And it doesn't even make sense, right? Like a child can't bring a, a share. Right, right, but even yeah, I mean, friends, right? Yeah. So um, earlier this year, I helped uh, to... Two, two best friends, they'd been roommates for 10 years, so they knew that it was going to work for them to live in a house together. Um, one of them had like a well-paying institutional job. The other one is an actor. So mm-hmm. his income was extremely variable. And and the they didn't know how to approach the agreement together and they were still in a situation where even the where like the friend with the institutional job couldn't quite afford the thing that she wanted but yeah. but by adding him was actually able to unlock that and so I think sometimes there's this feeling of like, oh, I don't really have anything to offer or I don't have a down payment um, and that's just one piece of the puzzle and I think one of the things that I enjoy about my work is, taking in all of the data and seeing how I can, what kind of solution can I put out? Facilitating right? the conversation, helping people like think outside the boxes they've, they've come they've in. Put the, the door, in. Yeah, they've put yeah. themselves <laughs> in. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, it makes me think that there's issues around the amount of equity. There's issues around the amount of the house that you is like maybe your private space or mm-hmm. storage or, or whatever. And that yeah. you can distribute that differently. And each house is going to have, interesting constraints on that anyways like mm-hmm. like most houses aren't going to be easily perfectly divisible for the parties that want to live there together right, right? and almost inevitably everyone is going to have to make some degree of compromise right um yeah and so one of the things that a lot of people think about when we or bring up to me when we talk about co-buying is what happens when things like I had a question in the last co-buying class that was like, what happens when it fails? When the shit hits right? the fan. What happens when it goes wrong? <laughs> yeah. Um, and my first answer to that is, well, what happens when it goes wrong with a married couple? Like it's not different. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's going to hurt. People breaking yeah. their relationship and, and going their separate ways is the same in a friendship as it is in a, in a marriage in terms of the, the legal sharing of property. Um, but we do, um, in our services provide counseling and um, examples of co-buyer agreements, which is a legal, de- a legal document that outlines um, 
What did you call it? A co-buyer agreement. Co-buyer agreement, yeah. Yeah, it outlines... This is the prenuptial. It's the prenuptial <laughs> agreement, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, it operates very much the same way, right? And just as you should draw up a prenup when everyone is happy, you should create the co-buyer agreement when everyone is happy. Do it at the beginning. Yep. Don't wait until something has gone wrong. Uh, and it can include things like how long, what, what's the initial hold time of the property? I have co-buyer groups who say, okay, we're going to hold it for three years and then we're going to see how we feel. Right. Um, It also outlines like how the appreciation works over time, because if different if people put in different amounts for the down payment, but then they're paying the same on the mortgage every month, then their then their equity is going to change. That's an interesting point, because that's that's another uh, way to sort of carve up the equity is Mm -hmm. there's the down payment and there's the the, The the mortgage payments. payments. Yeah, Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I've had lots of co-buyers who can't, who don't have much to contribute to a down payment, but they can swing. They have high income. They can swing a monthly mortgage payment. Right. Um, And so that's their way to build equity over time. But it also includes like, can I put a renter in? Um, How do you deal with sweat equity in a co-buyer agreement? Um, You know, all of those different, what if scenarios we can, well, maybe not all of them. I, I probably don't have a complete knowledge yet. So you've got, but you have, <laughs> you have templates or you have examples of yeah. things that are the sweat equity, the down payment, the mortgage payment, the, yeah. the, we um, have some guidance. So people who are coming now can benefit from all of the learning that the people before them have done. That's amazing. What a great resource that is. Awesome. How bit, what's your team like? We have three people on our team. Uh, so, uh, Laura, um, my started as my mentor, now my partner. Nice. Uh, she has been in the business for 17 or 18 years. So um, she went through the 2008 crash, has some battle stories around that. Uh, and um, she really built her business on helping artists purchase property. Interesting. Um, and, and works a lot in live workspaces. Uh, and then we also have Bree, who got her license a couple of years ago. Um, and she has um, lived experience in co-buying and in collective living. Um, so all of us have some lived experience in kind of what we're selling. And then like any any good real estate agency you've you have preferred lenders who kind of know what you're up to and how to like navigate some of the corner cases yeah we do i so there so for example so we have a lender we work with that has taught he's co-taught the co-buying class with us from the beginning um and so he's really passionate about co-buying and um really patient at getting everybody you know figured out mm-hmm. um uh, well, I have other lenders that groups have approached and they'll come to me and say, my lender told me you can't have more than three people on an application. And I said, well, your lender just doesn't want to do that work. <laughs> yeah, <your lender laughs> so that's wrong. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. <laughs> uh, so there yeah. are some people that don't, don't understand it or don't yeah. want to deal with it. Um, sure. But we have some good relationships with people who are excited about it. Well, I wanted to circle back to this notion of wealth building because, um, one of the things that I'm fond of thinking about or talking about is how, like, despite the, the monetary wealth and the material wealth that we have, we, we have such, we're so depraved in so many ways in terms of social isolation and in terms of, like, feeling like we have time to be creative or, you know, there's just, like, our mental health, you know, like, I feel like there's a lot of ways for, um, 
GDP to grow if we measured it differently, you know? Like, <laughs> sure, yeah. And, and um, one of the things I think about with wealth creation is like, I, I want to be surrounded by people that I care about and that care mm-hmm. about me and feel, I want to yeah. feel whole and feel like I'm connected to others, right? And um, I know when you said wealth, I lost the wealth word. Generation. Wealth generation. Wealth generation. Yeah. That it was more about, you know, numbers and cents on spreadsheets, but... Um, but I think there's really also like you're building wealth in, in other ways yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's really at the heart of the work that I do, right? It's like the thing that catches people is the money savings yeah. because we've been trained to want to make money and to own property, right? Um, but the people that I live with are like a family to me. My, um, my dad, which also like that was – also why it was so painful when we were going through the group living fight in Denver was basically this feeling of what's the group living fight. This is a political battle that was going on at the Denver level. So in Denver, um, we changed the number of unrelated adults that are allowed to live together from two to five. Um, so you're welcome, Boulder. That's (laughs) Thank you, Denver. (laughs) Um, so I spent four years with my family in the newspapers talking about why we should be able to live together. Yeah. Um, your co-op, Queen our co-op. co-op yeah. yeah. And we, there, we had a meeting of a secret meeting of all of the illegal collectives, um, and essentially said that we as queen city felt comfortable, um, putting coming, ourselves coming out. out there, coming yeah. out in the community because we were owner occupied. So we felt like we had some more power yeah. than a lot of the rental collectives that were out there. Um, but, you know, we live like a family. Uh, My housemates have a strong relationship to my son and we eat dinner together and we share chores and we fight sometimes. And, uh, you know, it feels much more like a family relationship than like a friendship in the, in the, the ways in which we're living. And I also feel to just circle back to something you said earlier about intergenerational sort of keeping you in the loop of, cultural changes or what's happening or just generally more connected. I mean, just the human experience sort of, you know, demands that we're with lots of different kinds of people or, or at least, you know, different aged people. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, uh, we have four generations in our house right now, right? We have a Gen Xer, we have millennials, we have Gen Z and then whatever they're going to name my four year old's generation. (laughs) Right. Uh, and so we have a pretty like wide breadth of experiences, uh, and also a lot of economic diversity, um, like a lot different racial backgrounds. Right. And so because I am closely connected in a quasi familial way to people with that diverse of a background, I have greater capacity around empathy um, for other things that are happening in our city, right? So like if I am, you know, if, if I'm doing well financially, I'm probably not all that worried about the cost of groceries. But if I'm sitting every day with someone who is really sweating, being able to afford food, right, then that's in my consciousness in a way that it wasn't before. Right. Or if I see someone that's like struggling with uh, implementing SNAP benefits because they lost their job, like that's a perspective that I wouldn't have if I was just in my own little box. Right. Right. Um, Well, related to uh, wealth generation, uh, you know, in the the kind of alternative sense that I just gave, um, I also like one of the things I think about is like unlocking human potential. Mm -hmm. And and uh, one one example that I love is the wild sage co-housing community, which, 
um, happens to house our mayor and uh, several advisory board members and community activists. <laughs> and like this little neighborhood has such a disproportionate impact on our city. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just kind of curious if you've seen that sort of thing where like you, the people that, I don't know if maybe it's a self-selecting <laughs> uh, demographic that, they're, that they like co-buying or, or if the co-buying has a way of unlocking human potential in a way that is outsized. I would love to study that. That's so interesting. Um, we, you know how, uh, you know how college houses would have themes, right? Like this is the vegan house. This oh, sure. is the, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we joke that the, th- the theme of our co-op is self-actualization. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's no small thing, man. Right. You know, that's, that's cool. Um, so I will, I, I have definitely seen, I mean, we don't, we haven't housed a mayor yet, but uh, I have definitely seen people uh, make huge strides while they live with us because they are, um, because they're surrounded by people that want to problem solve and want to support them. Um, I have a housemate now who um, was working like part-time service industry jobs uh, forever, doesn't have a college degree, um, and just got a job working in housing with a local municipality. because of some advocacy and an ability to um, to talk about their lived experience, that's going to move them into a salaried job for the first time in their lives. Wow, right? awesome! So I, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity to help each other in these like micro communities for sure. Amazing. Well, that fills me with hope and uh, excitement. I want to like. Uh, solve this puzzle for myself and my family and we've been renting for a long time and and we're I want to start kind of navigating the space of what's what's possible for us along these lines Um, and I hope that lots of other people start thinking about this too because I feel like you know this this uh, gamble that we often make about um, well I'll just drive to the suburbs until I can afford the size house that I imagine that I will be happy in. Mm-hmm. Um that's a that's a dream that needs to die quickly, you know, <laughs> like and um I I just I want for my city to to have people in it that are connected and you yeah. know have feel housing secure and feel like they can self-actualize right like i, I want to live in a house that's themed as the, the house self, of actualization <laughs> that's pretty incredible yeah i think there's a degree to which our our work is to encourage people to dream beyond like beyond the american dream can mm-hmm. i say that like yeah, sure. beyond uh, this yeah. this idea that the thing to do is to be an individual because we definitely have like individualistic propaganda yeah. in this country and and the truth is like collectivism is a lot easier in a lot of ways like sure you have to make clear agreements and interact with a lot of humans but you also <laughs> can like share groceries and childcare and lawn care like i i told somebody recently i haven't taken out the trash in eight years because because i don't pick that chore right but this the trash still gets taken out the lawn care is is one of these things that just is crazy making for me like i do not want to own a lawnmower i do not want to touch a lawnmower i don't want to smell other people's lawnmowers i don't feel like we should live in a society where every uh, uh, there's four lawnmowers per acre. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like it's just like I don't know if you want if you think individualism is so great, then you know um, 
I don't know. You That's must, what they you want must, you to You think. must love the smell of lawnmowers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, any parting shots for for this? This is. I mean, a... I think rethink the American dream is a pretty good note to end. Yeah. To yeah. End well, on. this makes me think. Um, do you have a book recommendation? <laughs> I do. I'm obsessed with um, a new a book that came out this summer called Everyday Utopia uh, by Kristen Goodsey. Um, she delves into collectivism at a pretty deep level um, and talks um, talks a lot about the history of utopian societies and um, kind of what they got right and what they got wrong and how we might um, flex or change for a better life in the U.S. So it yeah. was a really validating read for me and I think um, a nice uh a nice read for anybody that's interested in these topics. I'm so interested in these topics. And I bought the book. I'm 100 pages into it. I just finished chapter three last night, and uh, I'm excited to read more. I'm just kind of, I think I'm still wading through the, the history uh-huh. stuff. But it was actually interesting reading about um, uh, kibbutzim. Mm-hmm. Ka- that's the plural, kibbutzim. right? Kibbutzim, yeah. Kibbutzim, mm-hmm. um, given all the things that are going on in the world. And um, uh, I would love to have uh, urban Kibbutzim. Yeah, there was an um, there was an article about here. my yeah to have <laughs> Just it to be here. Clear. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was an article um, an article about our co-op that uh, had some good traction on a national site, and this woman in Jerusalem got in touch with me and said, "Should I bring my kibbutzim idea to Denver?" And I was like, "Please, yes, absolutely." Uh-huh. So maybe cool. it will come. Cool. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks today. for having yeah, me. It was welcome. a lot of fun. Great. Gonna find me a residential pedestrian district Where I can gracefully grow older Gonna spend my remaining years Sharing boulders Thank you for listening to Sharing Boulder. Please support the podcast by sharing it with your friends and neighbors. You can contact me at linktree slash philipbogren which you can find by visiting sharingboulder.us, where you can also find show notes and previous episodes. This episode of Sharing Boulder was produced by Philip Ogren and edited by Katie Avery. The music was created by Nathaniel Ogren and Sack Lunch. Keep sharing, Boulder.